All right. Dr. Andrew Hill, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me here in your office at the Peak Brain Institute. Institute. Yeah, my pleasure. You don't want to mess that up. <laughs> All right, man. So the main reason I'm here, I want to short story along, you guys. I was here in this office around a year, a year and a half yep, ago. Yep. And we did, we were, we were going to work with another company doing these tests, looking at what the effects of marijuana on the brain were. And so today we're back doing it again. I thought while we're here, uh, and you guys are actually going to see it this time. I have an episode coming out to show you the effects. Um, but while we're here, I wanted to just discuss with you your your personal um, perspective on the use of marijuana in either relieving stress or you know the, the negative things that come along with consuming yeah. marijuana and things like that. I mean, I think the negatives are fairly minimal. Um, you know, humans have been altering their consciousness since they've had consciousness, pretty much, since they've had brains, that we, we tend to want to do things to change how we feel. Many of these things cause problems long-term, like alcohol and, you know, drugs of abuse. I would argue cannabis largely is not a drug of abuse because physiological tolerance is hard to really acquire. There's no real withdrawal. Um, you know, no one's ever died from a cannabis overdose. And all of the the constituents in cannabis are proving to have some really interesting health benefits. I think we're barely scratching the surface. We don't know what those are. So it's still in this anecdotal land of people saying, oh, you know, CBD works for this, THC works for this, and these other you know, terpenes may have some uh, impact for different health things. I think it's very interesting, very promising. I don't think that the, the science has caught up to what people know works, which often happens with different interventions. Um, there are some mild negatives, especially with high levels of chronic cannabis use. Mm -hmm. um, the most obvious is it can slow down your brain a touch. It can give you some slower alpha waves, which can produce a touch of inattention, a little bit of spaciness. Mm, hence uh, my test results earlier. Yeah, your test results showed you had a little bit of impulsivity, a little bit of inattention, which may be chronic uh, use consequence, or it may just be the brain you showed up in the world with. Mm. You know, it may not be an acute effect. Uh, we'll see if the cannabis produces acute effect on you. But I wouldn't expect, unless you're actively, you know, have it in your system within a couple hours, it doesn't really have much in the way of effect on uh, your brain. You mm -hmm. know, chronic users who are abstinent don't show dramatic changes in their brain activity, probably. Uh, there's a lot of history, a lot of research uh, over the past 10 or 20 years, and several papers came out saying things like uh, there's an increased risk of psychosis, or decreased brain volume showing up. And none of these things are actually true as far as we know if mm. you control for only the cannabis. So people that are at um, predisposition to psychosis, cannabis may, relieve, may release that effect. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to provoke psychosis in somebody who's not already at risk for it. Uh, and these are pretty subtle effects, and it doesn't seem to have any effect on brain volume, developmental trajectories, any of that stuff if you control for socioeconomic status. If people that are more poor, have less education, less access to good health care, do have worse health outcomes and trajectories of performance over their life, a lot of the cannabis studies that were done 10, 20 years ago were using very poor populations as the cannabis users mm -hmm. and then more wealthy and you know, higher socioeconomic status people as the non-cannabis users. And so there's a lot of confounds built into the earlier studies. Yeah. All right. So I didn't say this beforehand, but Dr. Hill is a cognitive neuroscientist. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm here and asking him about this, because a lot of what you hear around marijuana is like hearsay or it's just mm -hmm. like some media outlet decides to produce a documentary right. and they don't nec necessarily have experts. You know, they might have rappers <laughs> who are sharing what they think about it. 
Um, and so that's why I wanted to get your two cents on it because I, I think a lot of the fear that people have is that it could be a gateway drug, right? Well, my, my take on that, I, I hearken back to like Dennis Leary who would say, yeah, it's a mm -hmm. gateway drug. It leads to carpentry. Yeah. Like you want to build stuff <laughs> yeah. you know, after you smoke weed. So no, um, you know, drugs can be gateway events, but that's not really about the drug generally. It's about the person's dysregulated uh, relationship with their own emotions, their stress response, their impulsivity. So in the absence of things driving psychological stress, people don't get addicted. Mm -hmm. So there's a classic study showing that if you give a, a rat cocaine excess, it'll self-administer until the point where it dies. It won't eat any food. It'll just sit there and become a drug addict. That study was basically debunked a few years ago by showing that if you put the rat in a enjoyable environment with rat playgrounds and little rat friends, mm. it won't use the drug. It'll prefer to be a social, enjoyable, you know, healthy rat. And, and the mm. dysregulated addiction behavior only shows up when the environment is horrible, boring, difficult. And that does translate to humans, too. Yeah, uh, your life sucks. Drugs are more right? fun than your life. Exactly. And, you know, getting away from cannabis, we think of alcohol as one of the big drugs people struggle with. 95% of people that are problem drinkers become non-problem drinkers with no help eventually. Mm. Uh, and I would argue that, uh, I look what the numbers are, something like 50% of the country acknowledges active, routine cannabis use at this point, or 40% mm. you know, of people below age 40 or something. Um, that's a lot of pot smoking. Mm -hmm. We would know if it had significant, profound effects at this point. Even anecdotally, we would have some good sense, and that just isn't really there. I think there are issues with the industry, the way it's proliferating. I think that people are being admitted to, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's the cannabis syndrome or the, or the stoner syndrome now showing up in some uh, emergency rooms, people showing up with nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain who are chronic heavy users. Mm -hmm. And we don't know why it's showing up, but my guess is it has to do with like the pesticides being used. Mm. So I think the industry is growing so fast that we aren't yet regulating the farming of mm -hmm. the production and you know, still a little bit um, of a wild west. But as we move into, I mean, everything will go this way into organic and, mm -hmm. you know, small batch and single source. We'll have more sense of control of the, the, the flowers and the extracts we're getting. And then I think it'll, it'll um, be a little bit better. But I don't think there's any dramatic issues. And we actually have ways of ameliorating some of the, some of the dra dramatic issues. If you get overstoned at a party because somebody handed you something you weren't expecting, a couple ibuprofen will actually take down the edge of your stone. Mm -hmm where it'll pull back, you know, 10, 20% in about 20 minutes. So if you're like gripping and holding on for dear life, yeah. a couple ibuprofen will take it right down quickly. Also, there's studies showing that co-administration of cannabis with ibuprofen means that later on there's no memory effects for when you were stoned. There's no learning impairment. Hmm. So um, I'm also a big fan of nootropics, and so I often co-administer cannabis with paracetam for the same reason to buffer the effect i'm getting so i don't get quite as stoned mm -hmm. and also have a nice enjoyable experience and then when it wears off i'm left very clear so i sort of function stack a little bit and play around with nootropics plus cannabis yeah um, that's something that i want to talk about a little bit because sure i personally have been trying to figure out what that sweet spot for me is going to mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. because for the most part now no one knows this who's watching this but i consume marijuana almost every day okay and it's it's usually something where my mornings are highly productive, so you know, a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. go, 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 intense exercise, maybe do a little more work, and then around six or seven at night, mm -hmm. I usually smoke like half a joint, yeah, something yeah. like that, and then that winds me down. Um, but the thing I wonder about is like, is this affecting my sleep at all? Am it I not? Probably is. It yeah. probably is affecting your sleep. Um, if you're an acute user who's not used to it, it definitely affects your sleep. 
Yeah. If you're a chronic user, we don't really know, but my guess is that it's affecting it actually a lot less than we would expect from the chronic literature, no pun intended. So essentially, um, there's some suppression of REM uh, that seems to happen, but it's not a very robust effect. So my guess is that in people that use it day in, day out, the brain adjusts to that. I mean, there was a study about 20 years ago looking at teenagers in Jamaica versus teenagers in New York City or something, mm -hmm. and they found that lifelong chronic use had no effect on intelligence, working memory, academic scores, projections for success in life. So it doesn't even seem to be all that risky for high levels of chronic use. Um, again, I think the, the risk factor is that can interact with problems you already have. Mm -hmm. You're stressed, you're unmotivated, and you know, cannabis is really enjoyable. So it gives you the ability to sit there and eat ice cream and watch TV all day long. Yeah. But that's not really about the cannabis, it's about the fact that you would use something uh, Poorly, you have a dysregulated relationship with something, regardless of what it is. So it's not like it goes from cannabis to you know cocaine or something. It's more like, well, you're somebody who may not have the best relationship with things that alter your brain. That's not really about the drug. It's about the fact that you don't tolerate your emotions or your impulsivity, your anxiety. Maybe you're a chronic user and can't fall asleep without it because it's a mild tolerance. Mm -hmm. But those are not really about the drug. They're about how you manage your stress your anxiety your impulsivity yeah absolutely and like i mean i'm a highly productive person i have a lot going on i do a lot of stuff yep. i'm definitely an achiever and i'm more of an achiever now than i've ever been and, and there was times in my life where like i wasn't consuming marijuana at all mm -hmm. and like there w it's not like there's like peaks and valleys in like my performance with that what i noticed is like for example the last five days uh, i couldn't consume any marijuana before we did this testing right my life is exactly the same sure the yeah. only thing yeah. that's different is like I don't like smile and giggle as much maybe at night. <laughs> and, just, and I would guess you're probably yeah. having a little more active dreaming. Just a little tiny t uh, hint of like, oh, that was an extra dream last night or something. Is that Definitely, true? Yeah. 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 But that effect would wear off. Probably mm -hmm. by now, it'll go back to baseline and you wouldn't notice it. Just a few days as it wears out for chronic users. Mm -hmm. Also, you're a relatively slender guy, not carrying around a lot of body fat. So you can't actually store a lot of THC in your fat because you don't, you're active, you're working out every day. Mm -hmm. So it's coming in and going back out all the time. If you were a 350-pound sedentary guy smoking blunts all day long, you actually have a fairly high level in your fat tissue. Hmm. And even after five days off of it, you would still have a lot of THC in your system. But someone like you, because you're very active, you're very slender, very muscular, you know, five days in is uh, a solid amount of elimination. I mean, people say the half-life of cannabis is around five days, but it's not. That's the half-life of the metabolite that is picked up on drug tests, hmm. not of the psychoactive metabolites. So the half-life is more like an hour and a half, which means that it's active in your brain for about five times that or like seven and a half hours. Hmm. So honestly, a five-day washout is a significant washout. It's a full half-life of the downstream metabolites and several times that five half-lives for the actual THC. So it's pretty much not in your system at all right now, except little tiny amounts in your fat cells leaching back into your system but not a very large effect because you're such a in shape kind of guy yeah yeah and what i've noticed as well uh over the last five days is um i think like i really enjoy having marijuana in my life but the the biggest thing that i like about it is just a shift in consciousness to look at my problems and look at my life through a different lens mm -hmm. and i'm just curious like Obviously, you work with a lot of people here trying to help them train their brain. Uh, yeah. Do you have clients that you actually would suggest that they would use marijuana? You know, I, I've never suggested anyone use it. Uh, you know, being here in Southern California, I find that 
you know, a quarter of my clients, adult clients or half, maybe we'll use it. Um, when it comes to the main thing we do, which is called neurofeedback or biofeedback on the brain, I do have a conversation about cannabis with most adults because doing neurofeedback, at least the way we do it, tends to abolish tolerance to cannabis mm -hmm. within a couple of weeks of training. So if you're a chronic user and then I train your brain for a couple of weeks, you'll end up having like a three to five times uh, magnified effect from the cannabis. If you aren't planning for that, you might end up couch locked or at a restaurant drooling or something. Yeah. And that's happened to people I've, I've worked with. And so now I always check and see if somebody uses it and find out if they do. And I warn them, oh, you know, you might get a really strong effect in a couple of weeks, be careful. Mm -hmm. um, and people still, you know, have strong effects. Um, I find that people use cannabis for all kinds of reasons. Some have specific medical con con uh, strains or complaints they want to use it for. Others using it sort of self-medicating anxiety or some ADHD stuff. Mm -hmm. um, other ones use it for sleep onset or creativity. Some use it recreationally. You know, I really work in sort of a brain fitness perspective. So, so sometimes people using cannabis recreationally, it's not really in my you know, wheelhouse. Yeah. Or medically, also not in my wheelhouse. So while I care about it, I'm interested in it, it's just like a, f uh, a piece of the puzzle we're always managing. So I, I always ask people about their diet, nutrition, sleep habits, exercise habits, nootropics, uh, meditation, cannabis. And these are all lifestyle factors that can be sort of built in and modified a little bit. Um, but if they're just a feature of what someone's doing with their brain, I want to know that stuff. But I don't generally say, oh, you should or shouldn't do cannabis. Uh, sometimes people ask me, should I quit cannabis? And my answer is, well, is it getting in the way? Is it, mm -hmm. is it causing problems? Are you thinking about it all day long, rushing home to smoke weed, um, getting car accidents because you're smoking on the way home? I mean, I yeah. is it in the way? No? Okay, well, can you, can you go out, can you go without it for a few days? You can. Doesn't seem to be a problem from my perspective. So I'm always about this idea that with substances, what's the relationship you have with the substance? And you know, we can have a healthy relationship with food, sex, alcohol, cannabis, or an unhealthy relationship with these things. And you wouldn't talk about an abstinence versus moderation perspective unlike food mm. or sex or maybe even TV watching. But we do when it comes to uh, things that alter our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's the right way of thinking about, oh, I can't do it or I must do it or I want to or can't. It's more like, well, how are you using it? In what role? Yeah, what role does it serve in your life? That's really the mm -hmm. most important thing. And for most of us, it's probably equivalent to a glass of wine with dinner or, you know, having a cigar after our, you know, our late meal or something. It's kind of enjoyable ritual mm -hmm. for many people, I think, more than a profound, you know, psychoactive altering kind of experience. Yeah, I think it's good that you say that because it really demystifies it for so many people who who are so afraid of it or mm -hmm. who have never used it or used it once or twice or three times yeah. or ten times and had like a really scary experience. Sure. But if you're someone who is a, a semi-chronic user, especially like, I mean, like I'll sit down, I do my work, I'm like just as productive yeah. as I would be without it. And I think people can't even comprehend that lens unless like you become a chronic user. So it's like two different yeah. worlds. And there's a lot of inter-individual variability. I mean, you are somebody who can become a chronic user and stay productive. Some other people might not be able to. Um, some people only use it at the end of the day because it alters their concentration, they can't be social, they get paranoid, they get kind of silly. Other people wake up in the morning, smoke, and go to work. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell they're altered, and they really aren't that altered. Yeah. So we have to, with any substance, be aware of what it's doing to us, subjectively and objectively, and just plan for that. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't recommend going and doing heavy machinery, yeah, or so. even working out at the gym heavily, in a way you can injure yourself if you're quite high. 
But beyond that, it doesn't seem to be an intoxicant that's all that profound relative to just about every other intoxicant that humans use, which yeah. I think are uh, unilaterally more powerful. Yeah, for me, it's just like dosage. Like I have like this rule of like principles for myself. And like mm -hmm. one of them is like, don't drink more than one coffee a day because you move too fast. Mm. The other one is like, don't basically well i tell myself like don't smoke weed more than this i haven't been that good about following this but don't smoke weed more than a couple times a week because it makes you move too slow mm -hmm. which sometimes can be good because sometimes you need to like sit back yeah, and think yeah. about your life through a different lens but other times like maybe you got to just get shit done yeah, and you yeah. don't and you don't want that exactly uh so I'm curious, coming from your academic background, um, obviously you're working at UCLA still, correct? Yeah, I teach uh, courses in uh, neuroscience and gerontology mostly, which is the study of aging essentially. Yeah, okay, very cool. So, so you, you have that background in like research. Obviously marijuana, you can't do research on it right now because it's still federally illegal. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I mean, research really depends in terms of human research and substances. It's all about what's called an IRB, an Institutional Review Board, which is a third-party company They'll basically say, is the research you're doing necessary and minimally risky and have you minimized the risks and is there nothing else that's less risky you could do? Hmm. Um, cannabis at a federal level, of course, is still scheduled, so you couldn't get grant money, NIH, NSF, you couldn't get grants to study it without you going through the departments that actually do cannabis work and getting the, the, the cannabis from the government. There are ways to get approved to do that. Hmm. Not very easy to get approved. Being a recreationally legal substance in California, though, very plausible to set up a research study and get a local IRB to say, yep, no problem. So it's really who's funding you and who has the oversight. Um, it often takes a lot of money to do human research. You know, it's mm. often very expensive, very involved. Um, the average clinical trial, FDA sort of approved clinical trials, a three to five million dollar project. You know, no one's going to spend three to five million dollars on cannabis because they can't have like a branded cannabis and then make their money back. You know, yeah. There's no big pharma equivalent here. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing stopping most of the scientists in California from saying, you know, I want to do some cannabis research, finding a small IRB company that can actually certify this as not risky and then mm -hmm. allowing them to do it. So we could do research on it. Yeah, because really what I want to see done is the research looking at the effects of marijuana on the brain, especially for athletes who've done a lot of like high impact sports, things mm, like football. Yeah. I played football in college. And the last time I was in here, we showed that like I had some brain injuries yeah. from that. Yeah. And then it showed that with the marijuana, it kind of, um, I guess, depressed some yeah, of the Yeah, it seemed to reduce some of uh, what may have been inflammation or some delta waves. So it looks like it woke your brain up a little bit, made you a little sharper actually. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I bet, I bet if you did measure uh, chronic high-impact athletes that do also smoke lots of cannabis, you would find they would have a neuroprotective effect because there is some anti-inflammatory sort of pro-circulation things that happen with cannabis. Yeah. But I think, I mean, obviously, like, it's still, like, in the NFL, uh, like, a lot of those athletes sh should not be taking Percocets and right. Oxycontin. They should be smoking weed probably after practice. yeah, yeah. Um, but that's just out of the question because I feel like not enough research has been done. It's not mainstream enough for it to be. It's not. Accepted. Although I would guess, I mean, you hear these horror stories about NFL, NBA, you know, co uh, team doctors just shoving everything into the player right before the game to get them out there and performing, and then they collapse after the game, have mm -hmm. to be sort of you know rehabbed. Um, I would imagine that there's a lot of CBD and THC being administered already because mm -hmm. team doctors will do whatever they have to do. 
to get somebody ready. And if a doctor thinks that you know, uh, CBD works better than Percocet, I bet it's being used, even though it isn't talked about very much. Mm-hmm. I don't think the NFL does any drug testing uh, for cannabis. So, I mean, because it's not, a, it's not a, a performance enhancer, really. Yeah, well, I mean, there is the whole thing of Ricky Williams. He was a running back who got kicked out of the league, I oh, think, did like years back for that. Uh, sorry, Ricky. <laughs> So, um, so they are they are monitoring yeah yeah they, okay. they they monitor that and, and athletes have been kicked out of the league for using it before which is like the sad part mm, it doesn't um, seem very it's not a very uh you wouldn't smoke weed before a football game and expect your performance to improve no absolutely so it's not. more like using it as a painkiller anti-inflammatory um, yeah and those are not actively in your system while you're using while you're playing the game yeah so I don't see the rationale for banning it as a, it's, you know, it's interesting. The same thing. Um, so I'm getting ready to fight in the amateur boxing fight. Okay. And, uh, I found out recently that I'm going to get drug tested. Mm. And if I have cannabis in my system, I'm not allowed to fight. Oh, wow. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure if I, if I consume that before I fought, like I probably get knocked out pretty quick. Yeah. yeah <laughs> my reaction yeah. time is going to be pretty slow. That's right. But it, that's just what it is. You know what I mean? It's still just kind of lumped together with like, that thing is bad. Like you right, shouldn't take right. that. I mean, there's lots of things on that, uh, on that uh, anti-doping list that are heavy performance enhancers, including mm-hmm. things that are nootropics. You can take phenylparacetam and ignore cold. Mm. You can take other nootropics and have more uh, sort of muscle contraction or ignore the fatigue. And I understand why those things are scheduled in, from a sports performance perspective. But I don't understand things like cannabis where it's mostly a, a treatment for all the wear and tear you're receiving from the sport, essentially. They're not actually improving your, your performance on the field or in the court. So yeah. I'm not sure. No, it's interesting. Well, let me see what we got here. We, we've tried to fit this in really quick between I'm um, doing these tests. So just so you guys know, I just did all my baseline tests, uh, attention tests, yep. did the EEG, and, uh, and so we're doing this interview now. And so after this, I'm going to go consume some cannabis. Yep. We're going to come back. We're going to see how my brain performs. Another attention test, another brain map. And uh, last time we just did brain mapping, we saw some changes. Yeah. So I'm, I want to replicate that for you, of course. And uh, we also didn't measure your attention performance last time. So I'm really curious what happens to your sustained and impulsivity uh, attention scores as we uh, change your brain. And really quick, um, please tell people about everything you have going on and where they can find you. Gotcha. So um, we are here at Peak Brain Institute. You can find us at peakbraininstitute.com. And we have five neurofeedback and mindfulness training centers currently in uh, two in Los Angeles, one in Orange County, San Diego, and St. Louis, if you happen to be in the Midwest. And we're opening up all over the country and world, and we work with people also one-on-one. So you don't have to be near one of our centers to actually get mm. brain training. You can get set up with a kit, and we'll send you home with gear and train your brain from afar. But our whole point is being a brain training center and taking neurofeedback out of the medical and psychological perspective and into the fitness and peak performance perspective. So mm. I'm never going to tell you what you need. I'm going to ask you what you want and then try to exercise your brain to get there. So peak, perf- peak, peak brain is about peak performance, and we want to peak your brain. Hell yeah. Love it, man. For now, my man, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing some of your knowledge. Thanks for having me. You guys, thanks so much for watching this episode. Appreciate it so much. If this was cool, this was helpful, please share it with someone anywhere on the social medias. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Please, every single person who subscribes, I appreciate you so much. Thank you.